I do have a point of order, something I need to talk about for our cold open, uh-huh. which is my dear friend Cam made me watch a movie called Knock Knock 2015, directed by Eli Roth, starring Keanu Reeves, Lorenzo Izzo, and Ana de Armas. I know yeah. you know Keanu. I'm not sure if you recognize the ladies. No. Ana de Armas is one of the most beautiful actresses alive right now. Ana de Armas. Okay. Whoa. Wow. I do recognize her. I've seen her in things. Yeah, she's been in plenty of stuff the past few years. She's like a kind of like there's parts of her that kind of look a little bit like Miley Cyrus and a little bit like maybe one of the Olsen twins, like the third one. <laughs> it's pretty like a little Mila Kunis in there, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But she's she is a beautiful though. woman and a great actress. Unfortunately, she co-starred in an Eli Roth movie. If you're not familiar with Eli Roth, he is director of such things as Cabin Fever and Hostel. So just soak that in for a second. She was in Knives Out. That's where I recognize her from. Yeah. That's it. That's the main thing I know her from. Just to give you a few titles, uh, Cabin Fever 2002, Hostel, Hostel Part 2, The Green Inferno 2013, which was kind of a ripoff of Cannibal Holocaust, both of those movies are terrible but this movie knock knock is the most obvious i make movies i cheated on my wife and me and my wife got into a big fight about it so i'm gonna write a script explaining how it's impossible for men to turn down pussy okay and that's basically what this entire movie is about is there is a literal line from keanu it's free pizza if somebody comes to the door and offers you free pizza i'm gonna take it referring to the women throwing themselves at him ah the women being the pizzas which sounds like something eli roth would actually say in an argument with his wife while talking about how he fucked some groupie at a fucking con. It's one of the worst goddamn things. He's a horrible writer and an even worse director, and it really shows in Knock Knock because he took three very good actors and made them horrible. Keanu has some of the worst scenes I've ever seen him act in this movie. It it was fucking painful. It was one of the most painful viewing experiences I've had in the past few years. It sounds... Is it a... It sounds like a horror. It is. Okay. Basic premise is Keanu is a loving husband and father to a beautiful artist wife and has Mm -hmm. two kids. It's a long weekend. Wife and kids head on to the vacation spot. He's got some work to finish up. Mm -hmm. While he's working, two girls who appear to be like lower to mid-twenties, they're very beautiful they're dressed kind of slutty they say they're headed to a party somewhere nearby but they can't find the party and it's raining so will you let us come in and wait for our uber to come or whatever it ends up being this whole thing where they seduce him they have a crazy threesome all night and then they tell him oh whoopsie we're actually underage and because you're a pedophile we're gonna tie you up and kill you now went a little different than i was expecting it to go yeah i like every Everything made sense up until like the very last part of that sentence where I thought they were going to be like, all right, now we're, we took pictures and we're going to give us money or we'll show them to your wife or mm, we're going to rob you now. Yeah, you you would think it would Something just like be that. stuff like that, but no, no, they had to go with the pedophile angle on it. That's weird. All the movie makes me think is that... Eli Roth slept with a 16-year-old at a con and then had to try and find a way to justify it, and so he wrote a script about it, because that's what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. 
It, and it's it's filmed horribly. Like, think about Wait Until Dark, where we, the whole time we were like, man, this feels like a play, you know, blah, blah, right. blah, blah. This felt like it should have felt like a play because there's a very long extended scene where they're in the living room together and the girls keep trying to get close to him and sit next to him and touch him. And he keeps like getting up out of the chair he's sitting in and moving to another chair in the room to get some space. Mm-hmm. And it feels like it's supposed to be very staged looking you know and filmed very cleanly everything's facing one direction right but instead of that we get 20 million cuts over the course of like a six or seven minute scene so it just ruins all illusion of it feeling like a real conversation and it's horrible that sounds horrible if you want to know more about knock knock just go watch it yourself i don't recommend watching it It's awful. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. In fact, I would write letters to Eli Roth and ask him why he fucked a 15-year-old at a con, because that's what his script sounds like. Mm. I have no proof to back that up. These are not legitimate allegations. I'm throwing that out there for legal purposes. But, (laughs) if I were to analyze his script, I would assume he fucked a (laughs) 15-year-old. That's... It's such a weird... There, it sounds like a weird plot. I obviously haven't seen the movie. Uh, the only movies I've ever seen in my life are the ones we talk about on this podcast. That's a joke, but it's not far from the truth. I don't, I don't watch a lot of movies. I'm the idiot ying to your smarter yang. Uh, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah. That idea isn't something we haven't seen before. Someone seduced by someone else, but usually they're not in a like a loving, nice relationship. They're on the rocks, they're fighting a lot, or there's they're young, or there's some reason where it undercuts the relationship. Did I mention what the big problem in the marital relationship was? She doesn't like pizza. Free pizza. No. no. The big problem is, quote unquote, it's been three weeks since we've had sex. Yeah. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Three weeks is a, you know, that's a little, it's uh, longer <laughs> than, than I personally would like. But in life, things happen. Uh, I was about kids. to say, is it, is it enough for you to fuck two random girls who come to your door just because your wife's out of the house? No. Well, do they have pizza though? <laughs> By the way, if you didn't realize, one of the writers is Joss Whedon, wrote for Buffy the Vampire Slayer, The Avengers, Angel, uh, Firefly, you know, all of that shit. He's a pretty great writer that I enjoy a lot. I've heard his name before. Unfortunately, he wrote Alien Resurrection, which uh, is the worst movie in the Alien franchise. Hey, you win some, you lose some, as long as you're better than Eli Ross. Oh, God, fucking Eli Ross. Welcome back to Real Specific. I'm Jake. With me, as always, is my friend. Hey, I'm Klaus. <laughs> you, you sleepy, bud? Uh, take two. Hey, hey, hello. I am Klaus. Klaus. <laughs> is that better? Uh, we'll just use all of it. Um, <laughs> this is the podcast where each month we pick a very specific subgenre of movies take a few examples and dive into them and compare notes. This month it's October. We're in the middle of our ooky spooky month and we're focusing on the very specific subgenre of haunted item horror. 
because of course it's horror, it's October. The only themes we have laid out so far is what is the haunted object, and then of course looking out for normal horror movie themes, which, you know, are the, the final girl, and just regular ass fucking horror memes, horror trends type stuff. No, 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 uh, horror memes. <laughs> horror memes. <laughs> Insert memes here. <laughs> But today, we are talking about The Cabin in the Woods, 2011, directed by Drew Goddard, written by Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard, which is important, I believe, because Joss Whedon is a good writer. I consider him to be great. I don't think anyone would argue that he is good. This is an interesting one. You got any opening notes you want to put out there? Yeah, I can kind of give you a, a brief overview first off spoiler alert go watch this one this isn't a shitty one this is one you should actually watch if you like horror and also if you don't take it from me someone who doesn't really watch a whole lot of horror this is a well, go watch this movie this is a good one before we get into any details i think it's worth saying this is a movie that we both enjoy a lot like klaus said even if you don't like horror this one has something for you go watch it not much else to say. I mean, I don't, I don't want to give away anything. I think going into this movie with zero knowledge is the best way to go into this movie. And if you want to know more about it, come back here and listen to the rest of the podcast after after you've watched it. Yeah, and so we'll we'll get into some of the twists and turns. It sounds like instead of spilling the beans here, so the general <laughs> backdrop is kind of what you'd expect from a movie called Cabin in the Woods. And if you look at the, I have no idea what the cover art looks like, but I presume it's a lineup of all the. <laughs> teens or young college age or whatever age they are that are going to spend a weekend at someone's cabin in the woods and that's all you really need to know and all the assumptions that come with that of other movies you've seen but the the story is going to be a little different than most of those that they use that pattern yeah if you want to take a look at the movie poster it's absurdly generic small point of order that cold opening is not a horror movie cold opening <laughs> by any means <laughs> you start out with the normal creepy intro titles and whatnot mm -hmm. that kind of have weird creepy images going on behind them but then you're just served up to this very strange like office setting where we're watching it's like a water cooler talk at, at some company exactly what it is uh with richard jenkins as Sitterson. If you don't recognize the name, don't be too mad, but he's an older guy. He's been bald and old since I've known him in film. I originally knew him as the dad in Six Feet Under, but he is in a million fucking movies and TV shows. You'll recognize him. And his co-worker slash friend is Bradley Whitford, who, once again, I know him from The West Wing. Uh, he's very <laughs> great in The West Wing. I remember the first one as the dad from Step Brothers, and then the second one as the, I guess, teacher from Billy Madison, who Adam Sandler fights against. He wasn't the teacher. He worked for Billy Madison's dad and wanted That's to keep it. Billy from getting the company. But yes, <laughs> <laughs> two, two on-brand references there, Klaus. <laughs> I like it. By on-brand, you mean incorrect. <laughs> no, no, completely correct. Just uh, on-brand for which films I thought you would know these people from. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Every time I'm like, what comedy did everyone know in middle school and high school that Klaus will know <laughs> these people from? Uh, 
Yeah, those are our two office worker guys, and the writers actually did this cold open hoping to make people think that they walked into the wrong movie. <laughs> they legitimately, because they advertised this film as like a solid horror movie, right? Mm -hmm. As just a generic kids going to a cabin in the woods college kids and they're getting killed off by someone that's pretty much how it was advertised and in fact this movie was supposed to come out a year earlier than it did but then the company that owns the owns the movie started having financial trouble the company was like oh we need to turn this movie into a gimmick to make more money off of it so they were going to try and go back and make it 3d because it's the early 2010s. 3D is one of the stupid fucking things going on. The writers and everyone got so pissed off at the company that they eventually gave up on the 3D thing and just released it as is. <laughs> so they just fucked themselves out of a whole bunch of money for like a year. <laughs> yeah, it really fucked them over. Does anyone Has anyone really cared about 3D? I feel like I've only really seen it as a gimmick and as it, it doesn't ever add much for me that's all it ever was was a gimmick 3d started in what the 70s just to make movies weird and gimmicky and mm. people put on the stupid looking glasses and sit there and watch a movie for an hour and a half to two hours and that's the same thing that's got like i get it for kids movies because it makes the movie more engaging for children mm. i get that Movies that are made for adults, there is no reason to ever have 3D in it. No reason whatsoever. So, <laughs> this cold opening, because I know you like your cold openings. Mm -hmm. I liked it a lot. I can't remember your qualifications, so I want you to kind of go over, does it have to have action? Does it have to spell, like, do you have to learn something from it? Because here you get the, I feel like you get some puzzle pieces, but you don't really get, like, you get a few puzzle pieces, but you don't really have any idea what the full picture is going to look like at the end. It makes sense towards the end but at first you don't really understand the context right once again it all depends on what kind of movie you're trying to make as to if you're going to do a cold open generally your cold open you want your audience to learn something from the cold open if you're doing a flash forward cold open like we did in don't breathe for instance you want them to learn a bit of information about something later in the movie that they will have in the back of their mind for the rest of the movie until it comes up again this however is it's a cold open but it's chronologically in the right place we're learning about the characters in this scene that's pretty much it and this first scene we meet our three main office characters which are the two men that i just mentioned uh citizen and hadley and then the woman that works with them amy acker who's playing lynn who works in the chemistry department of whatever business this is that they work for. And that's, you know, that's all you really need to learn is a little bit about these characters and how they interact with one another. And you get this smash cut to titles, loud, screaming, crazy noises, and then we're introduced to the college kids. <laughs> <laughs> I referred to them in my notes throughout the entire movie as scientists. Just that was my, I don't think they actually are, but that was besides her. But that was just my first impression because it, it reminded me of like an underground, a mix between like a NASA control center and an underground bunker. I got the impression maybe they're working for a government. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, clearly high security, like you would expect it, like a 
nuclear science facility is kind of what I thought on first impressions. It it's definitely has that feel of an underground giant government facility, right? You definitely get that vibe. I mean, e even the people driving around on hoodless golf carts to get around this giant sprawling facility, it certainly gives you that government vibe. Everyone is fucking pale, fluorescent lighting. Everything sucks. Everything's boring. They're talking about everything except for their job. <laughs> <laughs> because that's how these jobs are. They're all wearing like the white button down, their short sleeves and just basic ties. Black tie, black <laughs> pants, black shoes. Yeah. Very government issued outfit. Very government. And I love the moments throughout the film where it's suddenly demonstrating the company culture, if you will, of this group. Like there's a little celebration and a party that we'll get to at some point. And I just love it because it feels so stereotypical. But once you know the kind of reality and the backdrop to all of it is just so out of place to what's what they're actually doing and what's going on. <laughs> I love that juxtaposition. It's really fun. And when we get there, the characters do explain it pretty well, I think. So I, yeah. it works within the universe, but I think it would work if it was a real thing, too. Yeah. So, yeah, let's uh, go ahead and step into our next scene after our title screen here. By the way, this movie references almost every major horror movie from the past, I don't know, four decades or something like that before this movie was released. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to just go through every single fucking horror movie reference, I could. It's all out there on the internet, but I'm not going to do that. So if you want to know or if you're not sure what they were referencing, then, you know, go ahead and look up some stuff. But I'll mention, I might mention one or two here or there because they are lesser known horror movies that mm -hmm. I love the reference from. For instance, that whole intro fucking smash to the title screen with the loud screaming noises and everything, that's ripped straight from Funny Games. I, I like Funny Games a fucking lot. If you haven't seen that one, I say go do it. It's a different, it's another very different kind of horror movie but that'll be my one big reference that I mentioned. And so after the title screen, after this cold opening and this introducing you to this company, government, whoever they facility. are, facility, yeah. you're shifted suddenly onto a college campus somewhere. When this, during this whole set of scene, it felt kind of like a National Lampoon movie, maybe not quite as cheesy, but like in that vein of like, this is a college oriented movie or like older high school or oriented movie of a girl. She's packing, she's in her underwear just because you know your market and, you know, put a girl in underwear or take her clothes off. Take the cute redhead, put her in her panties and a shirt and let her dance around her room for a few minutes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and you get a, you learn a little bit about, I Got the impression she was dating a professor who broke up with her or something. You yes. had the hot blonde who's maybe a little ditzy. You have Thor who you think is the jock, but then he makes a book recommendation to the redhead. So maybe he's not. <laughs> So that's the interesting thing about all of these characters, right? This first look we get at them is their true selves, quote-unquote. You find out the redhead, she's had this sordid relationship with a professor, you know, she's not the quote-unquote virginal final girl that you're used to in horror movies. She's a very flawed character from the start. But, who gives a shit? We're moving on. You got the friend who recently dyed her hair blonde, so she's not generally the ditzy blonde character. They mention 
in the scene like oh my god you dyed your hair why then you meet fucking chris hemsworth who (laughs) thor who once again he's kind of playing the jock role but he's very clearly a very smart person who thinks logically and gives Kristen Connolly or Dana, the redhead, gives her a book recommendation on how to get a head start in a class and look even smarter than the professor. Mm-hmm. It's this whole thing where we're seeing the true side of them, but don't worry, that'll all be gone <laughs> pretty quickly. <laughs> you are introduced these characters, and we're going to heart, I think, a little bit more on that stereotype they fit into, just because it matters more for this movie, where you have Thor the jock or is actually but is actually the scholar the redhead who is kind of the more innocent one the blonde who's maybe a little bit more promiscuous you have a i think a wide receiver or some other sports jock who's Mm -hmm. apparently smart as well he's like a pre-med nerd oh yeah he's just throwing the football with chris hemsworth because they're guys so throw football see you show (laughs) me football i think you're you jock you dumb yeah you know words and then you have the uh, stoner guy who drives up with a huge bong in his lap. Uh, he gets out and it's a telescoping bong, but it collapses into a coffee mug, which is awesome. As most of our listeners have probably figured out, I like to get a lot of our behind the scenes and stuff just from IMDb trivia. Most of it I can check out and, you know, see if it's true or not. But a lot of it is some really sketchy information that has zero sourcing whatsoever. However, I know this one comes from inner reviews and stuff the guy who played the stoner character he had to go through hours and hours of stoner research quote unquote where he was taught how to roll a joint and how to hold a lighter to hold a to light a bong and just all this random shit about weed (laughs) he did a little weed night class for this movie this sounds like a weird um hollywood accounting we're gonna write this off so it has to be technically a class and technically researched in order to file for this exemption (laughs) it was just people in the props department like teaching him how to smoke weed (laughs) so all the guys in props who are probably blazing 24 7 walk in there and they're like bro if you're playing a stoner you gotta know how to roll a joint otherwise you're just not a real stoner Well, I'm glad they got that right, at least. Oh, man. Yeah, out of all the things to focus on, that's where the extra money should go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I think that's that's mostly it for this. You're, you're introduced to the characters. Some of your expectations are a little subverted mm-hmm. from what you might assume about them. And they get into an RV, which I guess they rent, and they're going to visit Thor's cousin's cabin out in the woods before we move on i do want to mention the thermos bong is a domino (laughs) that is set up for later Mm -hmm. uh, that our stoner has and i i love the dialogue from our stoner character because he's always very wax philosophical on every fucking thing and how society is watching us all the time and locking us down and we need to get around that and Mm. once again his philosophy is completely setting up a domino for later in the movie yeah in fact all the way at the end of the movie so it's just a very fun way to do it and i love that our stoner character is our voice of reason yeah and now that i think about it it's some of the things that we'll get into the mechanisms that affect the others is he resistant to it somehow because he's just so stoned (laughs) 
there's there's actually a quote later in the movie that I'll talk about when we get there. But, uh, <laughs> uh, also, before we move on, I want to mention who our actors are. Kristen Connolly is Dana or the redhead, as I'm sure we'll be referring to her as a lot. You will recognize her from things like The Happening and House of Cards. Uh, House of Cards, she was the secretary for the bald senator. Mm-hmm. And then we have Anna Hutchison, who is the blonde in this movie. I didn't really recognize any thing she was in except for a little lesser known movie called Encounter. I did recognize her from that, but everything else, I don't really know her. Then we have Chris Hemsworth, who is Thor and the Avengers. You'll, everyone will know him. As well as Jesse Williams, who is playing our, uh, he's the half black, half white actor. Uh, I know him personally from Grey's Anatomy. He's the mixed guy on there with the very bright blue eyes. If you've watched Grey's Anatomy, I can't remember his character's name right now. He's also done some video games stuff if I could remember the name of those games, which I can't right now. I forget the name of the game, but it's some game where, like, very realistic uh, robots or whatever are, like, helpers for people in the real world, and the whole game is just you making choices for the robot characters. He plays one of the robot characters uh, in that. And finally, Fran Kranz is our stoner character, Marty. I didn't really recognize him from stuff, but he is in stuff is the thing. He was in The Village, he was in The Dark Tower, Training Day, he's in that new Amazon show Homecoming. I don't think he's like a big character in most of those things, but he is there. He's in Training Day? Yeah, I don't know what character he is in Training Day, but he's in there. Damn. So yeah, he's in a bunch of stuff. You might recognize him. I didn't. So we're introduced to the characters. They get an RV, they're traveling to the cabin, and as they're getting there, they get a little lost as people in these sort of horror movies tend to do. They stop at a creepy-as-fuck gas station. They're looking around, and a creepy-as-fuck man comes out who just does all the stereotypical creepy things of, uh, oh, that land, people keep selling it, bad things happen, you get out of here. One line I wanted to highlight is, at some point he says, I've been here since the war. And one of them's like, which war? And he's like, you know damn well which war. I, I love the gas station guy. Uh, intercut with these scenes of the kids are more scenes at the giant underground facility as well. Mm-hmm. So we get more and more look into what they are doing. Just as they're pulling off in the RV, you see a guy on the roof of her house and he's like got the earbud in he's like they're on the roll or some shit like that so you know that they're watching these college students for whatever reason the more and more this movie goes on the more and more you feel like they are doing something very odd very sinister yeah as they're sitting at a giant control panel with these giant movies or giant video screens watching satellite imaging and shit like that yeah very nefarious (laughs) so you're introduced to that character who will come back to the gas station man Um, and eventually they make it to the cabin i don't know why Uh, maybe it's because the only other horror movie in the style i saw the cabin was like a big super fancy luxurious cabin in the woods with huge windows Mm. which is horrifying when you live if you live in the woods (laughs) but this was not it was kind of a smaller you know it was a very rustic cabin in the woods the next series of scenes in my mind are setting up this cabin is creepy there's a wolf 
snarling mounted on the wall. There's a creepy painting of like an animal being slaughtered. You take that down and there's a one-way mirror that looks into the other room. You see, the characters don't see this, but you see that cameras are all throughout this lodge being watched by the underground facility and the scientist or whoever they are. Right. Painting, painting the picture that this is going to be, this is a creepy place. And even before that, a domino is set up as they are driving into the tunnel with the RV. We're shown an eagle or something flying over this huge canyon that is outside of the tunnel and it hits some invisible barrier and dies and just falls to its death in a giant hole which is a domino for later but it's also showing that this is some kind of overly protected fucking government site or something i did not see that at all i completely missed that yeah but you're right yeah that sets up a domino So we're in the creepy cabin. Now, honestly, because the college student side of the story is intentionally generic, I'm probably going to be focusing more on the interesting part of this movie to me, which Mm -hmm. is everybody in the underground bunker doing their job right which is weird and interesting so it's literally them of course you've got your quote-unquote fish out of water character at the facility who is this uh army guard type dude brian white is the actor the character's name is truman he's the one in the control room who's in charge of making sure the door is locked or unlocked at the right times and only people with the right access can get into the control room and all that shit and they're talking to him like he's the rookie who might be puking his guts up in the corner later you know like there's a great line of do you clear on what's gonna be happening here i've been prepped extensively and did they tell you that being prepped is not the same thing as being prepared they told me i'll hold my post mr hadley good man (laughs) Yeah, and I actually loved that line. And it was such a, for me, I was like, oh, shit, like whatever they're about to do, it's going to be serious. And there's a difference between I've been briefed and been told what is required of me. And are you willing to do it? to stand there i love these two dynamic duo knuckleheads and their interactions with other everyone they seem to me to be clearly shitheads in a lot of ways oh yeah well and they're very jaded yeah as as we find out what their job is that makes a whole lot of sense because once you become numb to certain things that human beings aren't supposed to really be numb to uh you end up with a dark wacky sense of humor and (laughs) that's how you cope with these things and and at this point at least for me i'm not i'm still not sure what they're doing and i don't think the audience in general does for me i'm thinking oh is this like a science experiment they're talking about piping stuff in yeah is this some sort of experiment but why are they this serious about it with a force field and all of this other things if it's just an experiment in the cabin the true motivation behind it is kept a secret all the way through the movie which is a great way of doing it and i think that part plays perfectly and our two worker chuckleheads as you referred to them they are basically movie representations of our two writers like they have in interviews and things said that they're, they're like Yeah, this is us working together on a screenplay, basically. (laughs) It's just (laughs) us joking and finding out ways to kill off characters. Like, that's that's us writing a horror movie. I love to attach to the scene as you're kind of getting a view of this facility and and you're getting hints as to what they're kind of going to do as they're flashing between the cabin and the facility. I love the conversation between the two chuckle fucks and (laughs) the harbinger, as they call him, the gas station man, who's apparently hired 
scared to be creepy. Let me plug in some of the Harbinger talking to them on the phone scene real quick. Don't take this lightly, boy. Wasn't all by your numbers. The fool nearly derailed the invocation with his insolence. The ancient ones see everything, and they will not be. I'm still on speakerphone, aren't I? <laughs> oh my God, Mordecai! <laughs> so yeah, that's that's that. <laughs> The writing for this movie, the dialogue is just so goddamn good. And yeah. we we have both worked in those kind of like boring office spaces with boring people and those kind of jobs before. You know this kind of behavior where you're doing a phone prank just because you're bored at work and this person will fall for it every time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're clearly shitheads. And like you said, just jaded about what they do and they don't give a shit and they're just trying to find some joy in their day-to-day mm-hmm. shitty boring life uh, even though it's not boring <laughs> at all you do get a little bit because the fish out of water guard kind of is like is all this necessary i feel like he brings up a little bit of questions and you get a line from them something along the lines of hey you know if they don't transgress they don't get punished They pass the gas station guy who all but says, turn around or you'll be killed. Um, And as long as they don't touch anything, you know, it's it's has to be their free will that makes the choices. You're still not exactly sure what that all means. You're starting to the picture of what's going on is starting to clarify. There's some blurry places, but you're starting to understand a little bit that this is beyond just science. And this is where the true the true horror movie parody comes into play, because very similar to Scream, you basically have characters telling you the rules to horror movies, which are we have these specific stereotypical characters. We have these rules where you can't die unless you break a rule, like shit like that. Even all the way down toward the end of the movie where you find out the virgin character is optional as long as she dies last. That's yeah. a very big horror movie trope. So all of this shit is just the quote-unquote horror movie rules, and Mm -hmm. we're going to point them out constantly throughout this movie, but that's all our fish-out-of-water character is there to do, is to bring up a question that most audience members would bring up and be like, but why? And then their answer is almost always, because... Like, that that's just the rules, man. Yeah, it's just a tool, yeah. Way quicker than I expected, we go from introducing our characters to they're at the cabin now to shit starts popping off, which makes sense in the greater scheme of the movie. But if you're expecting the more traditional horror up until this point, you're like, wait, this is already happening <laughs> this early in the film? Because we're flipping back and forth between the office workers and then the quote unquote horror movie. Right. It kind of throws the pacing of a normal horror movie off. So everything seems like it is accelerated. But also in the eyes of our office workers, they're just trying to get this done in the time limit that they have set and mm. and also put on a good show quote-unquote right once again i'm not really focusing on the horror (laughs) like the college kids side of the story just because most of it is generic as fuck nothing too terribly important i think happens until they start partying at the underground facility so they start betting and taking pools and at this point you don't know exactly what they're betting for but everyone's betting on something this is an experiment this is a game there's an outcome there's a winner and a loser and the audience isn't clear on the parameters quite yet but people are 
betting, uh, and it's a very ruckus betting. Everyone bets, including the chemistry science lady besides the guard who abstains. Just so everyone's aware, there's a giant betting board with all of these things written on it, and if you have a big enough TV or screen and have a chance to pause, take a good look at that list. I'm going to read off the list of things that are written on that board real quick. Here we go. Werewolf. Alien Beast, Mutants, Wraiths, Zombies, Reptilicus, Clowns, Witches, Sexy Witches, Demons, Hell Lord, Angry Molesting Tree, Giant Snake, Deadites, Mummy, The Bride, The Scarecrow Folk, Snowman, Dragon Bat, Vampires, Dismemberment Goblins, Sugar Plum Fairy, Merman, The Reanimated, Unicorn, Huron, Sasquatch slash Wendigo slash Yeti, Dolls, Zombie Redneck Torture Family, The Doctors, Jack-O-Lantern, Giant, Twins, and Kevin. <laughs> I am curious to know who, who Kevin is. Unfortunately, Kevin got cut from the movie. Uh, Kevin was supposed to be a, like, guy who works at a retail store, who just looks like a nice retail guy that's worked in retail for way too long, until he starts dismembering you and killing your friends, so... Gotcha. <laughs> You have all these individuals that are betting because towards the end of the scene, they show that board that has all that stuff in it. Um, everyone's betting on it. And there's some in, some funny dialogue of like, oh, maintenance always bets on this. It's the boring thing. <laughs> and one of the two chuckle fucks really wants the merman to happen because apparently that doesn't happen very often. On the other side of the, the cabin wall, uh, standard stuff is happening. They're drinking, playing through the dare. Um, at some point, there's a loud noise and a door to the cellar opens up. And in typical horror movie fashion, they dare one of them to go down in it. They go down and they find a bunch of creepy shit. Dolls and weird artifact looking things and journals and all sorts of shit. And this is where things start to pop off. So if this were an actual horror movie and not a horror movie spoof comedy kind of thing, this is where I would be complaining about not understanding the size and layout of this cabin because you look at it from the front and it looks like a very tiny like maybe four or five room cabin but then you get this giant fucking basement just filled with all these random items that are sitting on shelves and little boudoirs and shit like that just all over the goddamn place and every character kind of ends up going towards a certain item i think uh mm. the blonde picks up a pretty necklace and she's about to put it on Chris Hemsworth is picking up a spherical puzzle box type deal mm. and playing around with it. Can't remember what the other two are picking up, but our redhead picks up a diary, a very old looking 1800s diary. And just before everyone else can unlock whatever item they are, that uh, whatever item they have their hands on, our redhead starts reading out of this diary. Mm. <laughs> and... <laughs> Which will precipitate everything else. I did want to briefly say, where in most horror movies, the actions of these people would... It would feel like a poorly made horror movie where they're doing they're doing things that don't quite make sense. But that is justified in this film by the scientists or the facility people pumping in gas and stuff. Multiple characters point out that the other characters are not acting like they normally are. And that kind of justifies the poor stereotype of horror movie people making bad decisions right and you have lines from our scientists people who are like oh how did you get the drugs into the blonde system and they're like oh we put it in the hair dye so that it slowly absorbs through her scalp 
and into her system and shit like that. Okay, so the dumb blonde thing has a purpose within the film, not just... Right. <laughs> it all just has an explanation for why the stereotypes exist and how they are creating the stereotypes. Even down to later in the movie, when our redhead kills a bad guy with a knife, spoiler alert, she drops the knife, it shows one of the guys in the control room flip a switch, and a little spark of electricity happens on the knife handle, and that's what makes her drop it. And she just kind of like instantly forgets that she ever had a knife. <laughs> Which, when it happens in a horror movie, everyone in the audience is like, fucking pick up the knife, keep stabbing, what is wrong with you? But in this movie, right. they gave it a legit answer as to why that character dropped the knife. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, This concept is really interesting to me. So like you said, she starts reading first, stopping everyone else from unlocking their haunted item which is i think this movie gets in on a technicality but it's such a good film i'm <laughs> glad it makes this subgenre well i mean it is one of the biggest plot points of the whole thing it, it decides who they are going to get killed by technically yeah it <laughs> it's it yeah absolutely you cannot argue with it that it has haunted <laughs> items because it has many of them <laughs> I will and die can... on this hill, goddammit. I will defend my choices for this list. <laughs> it's not what you expect from the subgenre description, but it absolutely fits. And it's a great mm. movie, so like, fuck it. <laughs> so she starts reading, and everyone's like, oh, cool. Except for Stoner. She gets to this Latin part, and he's like, all right, line in the sand. Do not read the Latin. <laughs> <laughs> it's It's such a, like... I'm watching a horror movie and they're about to do something that I'm not going to tempt fate, so I would never do this. <laughs> and your stoner yeah. character is just like, no, this is what happens to stupid people in horror movies. <laughs> do not read the goddamn Latin. <laughs> they read the Latin and immediately we see zombie redneck family burst out of the ground and start shuffling their way towards the cabin. Um, I think there's a moment where it cuts to the facility and everyone's like, oh, you know, screaming, yes, they won or boo, they lost. The guy that wants to see the mermaid is upset because it's the zombie redneck family again and not the mermaids. Yeah, zombie redneck torture family. It's a totally different breed, as we were told. <laughs> yeah, because zombies was also an option, but they're different. I love every everything that happens in the fucking facility is just fantastic and and by the way uh maintenance maintenance and and the intern both bet on zombie redneck yeah. torture family so they both get to split the pot <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh so we have this and then one other thing i think it's happened at this point and if it doesn't if it hasn't happened yet it will shortly you're getting brief snippets in the facility of like pictures of other places in the world like japan and like brazil and you're seeing I, like you're thinking are similar things happening somewhere else at this point you don't distinctly know why but this is not just a this one place thing this is happening all over the world for reasons you don't quite know yet i can't remember if they give an exact number of quote-unquote facilities that this is done at but we are shown at least, I think, four or five others. The big picture of what you're learning is that all the others have failed except for Japan and America, or mm. Japan and the U.S., I should say. Those are the only two left that still have time to get the ritual done within the timeline, which apparently mm. is before sunrise tomorrow, as yeah. we will eventually be told. Japan still has a chance. They've got a room full of little girls locked in a schoolroom. 
<laughs> schoolhouse, and there's some kind of weird the grudge type ghost floating around the schoolroom classroom. Hmm. Hopefully, uh, which they keep saying like Japan has a hundred percent clearance record. What the fuck are you worried about? <laughs> Japan never fucking fails. All they do is work. We're fine. <laughs> <laughs> Easy dialogue dominoes like that are always bad, in my opinion, but in this, it works, of course, because we're doing a parody. And at this point, back at the cabin, things have obviously been set off. Thor and the blonde run off to go make out and have sex in the woods. You can see all the lo- all along that science, or the facility, I should say, or whoever these people are, mm-hmm. are guiding the narrative. So they're releasing gas pheromones from the floor. I love this scene because every time the blonde comes up with a reason to not have sex in the woods, they just do something to fix that. She's like, oh, I don't know. We're in the woods. And so they like, move a lever, release pheromones into the air from under the mossy floor. And then she's, I don't know, it's cold. Do we have temperature control in that area? Oh yeah, let me crank it up. (laughs) I don't know, it's so dark. And then they just light up a patch of grass (laughs) in the fucking woods. It's middle of the night, no one knows where this light's coming from. But we're just gonna beam in some light right here so she finally feels comfortable enough to take her top off. So you, yeah, exactly. So she... And at this point, it's it's hilarious because the entire control crew is like on their hands and knees, like on the edge of their seat, just watching to see what happens. <laughs> and finally, yeah, she takes her, her top off and, and they began to have the sexy times. One of the scientist guys has a great line here about the about everyone trying to watch and see the blonde's tits. I'm chilly. OK, guys, that's it. Let's go. We got a job to do. Your basic human needs disgust me. Get out of here. <laughs> I I like that line a lot too. There's some truth in this in this comedy. Oh, uh, there's a lot of it. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Um, but as they're having sexy times, they're set on upon by some undead redneck family who come out and start attacking them. And <laughs> Thor, like, tackles one of them. <laughs> I love that throughout this movie, like, Thor several times, like, clotheslines one of them. <laughs> like, these yeah. things, besides the one Undertaker, the big one, the rest of them can just be shoved around. <laughs> I love it. He definitely just, he does all the physical acting that is done in this movie. Just about, just fucking, like you said, spearing people, clothes lining just whatever he can do to get past these fuckers i did love the zombie design though because you uh as they were reading through the diary they find out that the girl who was writing it had her quote-unquote good arm chopped off and et so when you see the little girl with only one arm you're like oh no it's patience buckner we we know who wrote the fucking diary we know who this is yeah and then papa buckner carries around a goddamn bear trap on a chain which he uses as a weapon throughout the movie which is the dumbest weapon ever if you know how bear traps actually work but it's the funniest weapon ever if you're in a movie who doesn't care about real life at all (laughs) (laughs) at some point while they're having sexy times zombies attack eventually one of the zombies gets thor in a chokehold as Papa uses his bear trap to drag Blondie towards him and makes Thor watch as he uses a saw, kills her kind of, sort of off screen? Uh, Was it off screen? I I thought we saw... No, I'm pretty sure we see most of it. They're holding Thor there. They sit the blonde up on her knees and then two of them take a saw and just saw her fucking head off. Okay, so it does a big cut, big spray of blood, and then cut to black. 
But as long as you see that giant spray of blood and the fact that they're sawing at her neck, it's safe to assume she's actually dead. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, yeah, she's dead. And that's uh, all I meant by that is the, the cut to black. But yeah, she's yeah. definitely dead. Uh, I forget exactly how Thor escapes. It, I guess he just punches one of them or something. Yeah, I think he just, he just breaks out of their hold and then tackles one of them and runs off. So. <laughs> Right after her death, though, is where we're introduced to some of the more important, like, subtlety within the facility, which is both of our scientists say a little prayer and kiss these mm -hmm. medallions around their neck. And then they go and pull a lever, which shows this horrible CGI blood flowing through a way too complicated mechanism and yeah. finally onto some kind of stone tablature. And we don't see what it is exactly, but we get the idea there's some kind of weird, crazy ritual going on. And that's a good point because they say this prayer and at some point they say something like, they mention the word slumbering. It's not till the end of the movie when she... Is it Sojourney Weaver? Sigourney Weaver. Sigourney Weaver, who like explains pretty directly what they do. But it's it's sprinkled in throughout the rest of this movie. And this is a moment where they say slumbering and the, the rest of the prayer. And you may be thinking, okay, so they're doing some dark shit, but are they trying to keep something slumbering? Or do they work for the devil? Are they trying to keep the devil sleeping and satisfied? Right. So they're hinting at what will be fully explained to you later. So Thor runs back into the cabin. He's covered in blood. He's freaking out. Everyone's like, what's going on? He closes the door. He's panicking. And I think it's the redhead who uh, says, oh, no, I'm not leaving Blondie out there to die and opens up the door. Well, there's Papa Buckler or whatever they, they were name is. Buckner. And he throws the head she has a great horror scream, which is why I think she does it like four times throughout the, rest of the movie. Well, if you're going to have a female lead in a horror movie, she's got to have a great scream because she's going to be doing it throughout the movie. So I'm glad that she is actually good at it and we didn't have to use like stock screams or anything. <laughs> she's a great scream as Papa Buckner throws the head of Blondie. She catches it and then throws it off to the side and then tries to enter. There's a great moment where you realize like, oh, Thor could clothesline these other zombies, but not Papa. <laughs> and so everybody's working together to close the door, and they actually have to call Redhead to like, hey, help us. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> She's just standing in the background screaming with blood all over her, like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> They eventually close it, and of course, Papa starts banging on it with a significant amount of force, and they start to go into plan mode of lock everything down. We're going to stick together. We're going to make the smart horror decisions, right? And then as they're walking down the hallway with Chris Hemsworth leading them, the chemical department at the facility is like, whoa, whoa, whoa we can't have that. So they let a little gas out of the vents. He gets a whiff of it, and he instantly goes, no, this isn't right. Turns around. We should split up. We can cover more ground that way. <laughs> so everyone's like, yeah, that makes sense. And they run to, I think at this point, they run to their own rooms to begin to supposedly to be closing down the windows and all that. The facility says, all right, lock them in and locks them in their separate rooms as the zombies are starting to crawl and fight towards the windows. Which, you know, perfect strategy. Divide and conquer. Just give your zombie torture family, give them enough time to get in there and kill the fuckers. And that'll mm -hmm. be that. So I think the next part is Stoner is in his room. He's freaking out. He knocks over a lamp. And at some point you see notices something on the lamp on the bottom. He looks at it and it's one of those cameras that's on a long like snake-like cord. He's like, what is 
this? And he starts following it, pulling it out. Meanwhile, the facility, they're like, oh, no, 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 no. What's happening? What's happening? They're starting to call in gas to stop him because they're like, we can't have a stoner figure us out. And then the other chuckle fuck's like, hold on, because somebody Buckner's on the way to save us, who's the zombie that's crawling towards the window. This is great because our stoner character, once again, is the only one that has noticed the weirdness around them so far. Like, there's a scene earlier where he walks outside and he's staring up at the sky and he goes, I thought there'd be stars. We are abandoned. <laughs> <laughs> It's a great mix of being the only one that figures it out, but also being too stoned to really put the pieces together. <laughs> and so as he's kind of just leaned back, kind of in shock, realizing or thinking, I'm on a reality TV show or something. Uh, a zombie crashes through the window behind him, pulls him out. There's a scuffle. He uses his bong like <laughs> telescopes into a club where there's a fight. And then I think it cuts to black as well. So you don't see him die, but it's presumed he does. Yeah, he gets dragged off into the woods and you hear a shitload of screaming as the bear trap is dug into his back and everything mm -hmm. else. So you assume he's dead. Everyone at the facility assumes he's dead and they pull the switch for the stoner. Right. They pull the switch for the stoner. Blood starts running down different stone lines and something we can't quite see yet at this point i called him glasses nerd boy crashes through the two the one-way mirror uh into redhead's room um and they kind of join together which these are the only rooms that after they were locked in they could kind of team back up together because of this mm -hmm. one-way mirror and they were smart enough to find it so they're smart enough to use it here when they need to so they're brought together and at this point it's around here where we cut back to the facility and on these different monitors Monitors, this TV monitors, you're seeing like this creepy ring girl ghost in light who's just screaming and you're thinking like, oh, she's killing the children and it kind of pans out and there's a ring of children who are like singing a happy song <laughs> and the ghost eventually like pops into a light that falls down into like a bowl of water with flower petals and they pull her out and she's a frog and they something, say something to the effect of now this evil spirit will live as a happy frog forever. <laughs> it's fucking great and the guys are just pissed off they're like slamming their fists on the desk like 100% clearance record my ass so now they know whatever it is they're doing here it's all on their shoulders they're the last yeah. ones left I kind of forget exactly how it happens but Glasses Redhead and Thor eventually come back together I think they end up in the basement again there's a nice part which you kind of alluded to earlier where a zombie gets to them and tries to pull Glasses away the scholar away but redhead does the right thing and stabs him one stab doesn't kill him so she stabs him multiple other times <laughs> until he releases him and eventually he does but then like you said that they trigger something that sparks the knife and makes her drop it so she doesn't have a weapon anymore shortly after that is when they get outside the cabin they run back into thor thor's like fuck it everybody hop in the rv we're hauling ass mm. he asks dana the redhead uh what happened to stoner guy she's like he didn't make it so they're like fuck it we're getting out of here they hop in the rv they're driving down the road they get to the tunnel and they're driving through the tunnel and that's when we cut back to the facility and they're like the tunnel's still open the tunnel's still open and we get this <laughs> nice little action sequence of our nerdy office workers running through hallways clear the way clear the way opening computer panels and sticking bare wires together to trigger explosives that were supposed to go <laughs> off hours ago it's funny too that there's a domino set up at the very beginning cold opening where 
where the female scientist is says something to the effect of like, what if there's a glitch? And they're like, the two chuckle fucks, like, we haven't had a glitch in 20 years, Missy, and just ignore her and drive off. <laughs> not, not just that, they're like... We haven't had a Twitch since uh, 87 or something like that. And what what department was that? Wasn't that uh, the chemical department? Remind me, honey, which department do you work for? And then they <laughs> laugh and just drive off. <laughs> like, damn. But Ugh. this time it was a demolition. demolition. Yes. <laughs> the demo department is how it's referred yes. to. Yes. So demolitions fe fell asleep on the job. They didn't get their part done and they almost ruined everything. Our main scientist, Richard Jenkins or Sitterson, saves the day and blows the tunnel just in time. Our horror movie characters throw the RV in reverse and barely make it out of the tunnel before all the rocks mm -hmm. fall on their heads. And now they're stuck on this road, which has a giant chasm in front of it yeah. to get to the other side. And they're trying to figure out how the fuck they're going to get out of here and get help. The next scene is really, it's so interesting because eventually someone's like, yeah, you definitely can't jump it. And Thor's like, jump. Did you say jump? <laughs> and pulls off his dirt bike and, and he's like, I've jumped bigger before. And then there's several moments of heartfelt scenes <laughs> Where Thor is like, oh, no, I'm going to go for it. And they're like, all right, well, be careful. And are you sure you want to do this? And <laughs> I've got to plug in this one line here. It's him being like, I don't care what happens. If Even if I wipe out, I'll crawl to the next town. And I'll come back with help to save you guys. <laughs> Something like that. It's just like... <laughs> Chris Hemsworth, you're so good at playing the hero character, but this is not the time, man. <laughs> it, yeah, it is such a almost cheesy heroic setup. And in my mind, kind of thinking more in like a comedy sense, I'm thinking, oh, this is going to set up. He's going to like drive off and like not even get halfway and just die. <laughs> But what happens instead is he gets a run up and start. Looks like he's, he's going to make flying it. Flying through the air. Looks like he's going to make it. And then push, he slams into a yellow hexagonal invisible force field that suddenly shows up um, as he just falls into the chasm. There's another screen number two from Redhead um, as Thor's <laughs> dead. You get a beautiful shot of him and the bike just tumbling down this wall with it lighting up as it falls into infinity. At that point, there's a turn, I think, in the two remaining, the two that we characters remaining, where the Redhead is now very cynical. She's like, they blew up the thing. You know, the zombies are over there. There's a force field. Like, we can't fight against this. There's nothing we can do. And Glasses is like, I need you just to, like, we'll fight. I need you with me. You're the only thing I have left. Yeah, so they keep get your into the shit RV together. <laughs> yeah, keep your shit together. They get into the RV. They start driving off. He basically says, look, the road goes the other direction, too. We'll just keep driving until we're off the property. There has to be another mm -hmm. way out. And that's when she's like full on conspiracy mode. Marty was right. Marty knew everything. They're fucking watching us. They're controlling us. They race off in the RV. RV goes off a cliff into the lake as they're being attacked by one of the Buckners. Yeah. Because <laughs> he says, get your shit together. We're going to do this. We're going to make it through. Shink. 
some sort of metal tool goes through the back of the chair and through him. He's dead. They swerve off the cliff, fall into the water. There's a cool moment of her trying to bang on the roof door or something to escape. She's swimming out. One zombie's trying to grab for her foot, almost does, and kind of pulls on her, but she escapes and swims out of the water. There's a terrifying shot of her swimming up just Ugh. frantically, and you can't see the top you, you of the can't, water. You can't see the top. You can't see anything around her. It's just a giant, vast, watery space that fades into blackness and it is if you hate open spaces like i hate the idea of being in the open ocean where mm -hmm. there's no land in sight no nothing yeah i hate that idea and so that shot really cuts deep in me i also wanted to mention joss whedon really enjoys having people impaled while they're driving something if you'll remember the movie serenity spoilers for serenity if you haven't seen it wash the pilot for their spaceship gets a fucking spear through the spaceship windshield and straight through mm -hmm. his chest into the chair so joss whedon no, he enjoys that getting just impaled violently. <laughs> so at this point, she's turned to swim up. We cut back to the facility and they're celebrating at this point. And you're thinking, why? And they explain it. Everyone's dead. The The death of the virgin is an optional for the ritual. We don't need it. They explain the rule explicitly, like you said. Uh, so everyone's celebrating, having a good time. The main thing is that she, you know, suffers. So long as she suffers. That's right. We've gotten that. And what's his name from the West Wing? He's even like, I don't know why, but I'm actually kind of rooting for this girl. I hope she makes it. I love that part of the scene because at this point, everyone's been sent out of the room besides the chuckle fucks just to make sure everything goes according to plan. The last one that's required dies. And so he has this very heartfelt thing of like, I don't know why I'm really rooting for her. It's like she really seems like she's, you know, has a lot of heart. And then boom, burst in the rest of the crew who now realize the ritual is complete. We did it. Everyone besides the optional death is done. They bring tequila and he suddenly immediately clicks into like <laughs> asshole mode yeah. he's like fuck yeah tequila let's get it going you, well you got to keep up that around the office reputation right you can't you can't be known as the softy when you're the guy in charge of killing 20 somethings for a living so. that that facade comes back so they're celebrating the room fills up with everybody and a red phone on the wall begins to ring there's a great scene where everyone's still before that this is, I alluded to this earlier about the corporate kind of lifestyle. This is very much a like a <laughs> bit corporate party. Yes. And you get a couple of scenes of people trying to, like this one guy who's trying to talk to this hot girl who's not looking at him. He's like, oh, I just happen to have two tickets to your favorite. And she just walks off not hearing him. <laughs> As he just finishes his sentence, the interns being awkward, like it's very much distinctly an awkward corporate party. Somebody's talking about all the overtime they're getting and he's like, well, you know, I'm an intern, so I don't qualify for OT. <laughs> Everybody's just like, shut the fuck up, intern. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I fucking love it. And uh, during this celebration, all these funny scenes, the red phone rings. Everyone seems to not hear it besides the two main chuckle fucks who look at each other. There's a great scene of like the parties going around them and they turn and look at each other and know something's wrong. They go over, they say, tell everyone to shut the fuck up. <laughs> Stop the <laughs> turn fucking music. <laughs> <laughs> they answer the phone and I don't remember if you hear 
besides just murmurs on the other line. You don't. You get the impression something's wrong. Not everyone's dead. Who's who's left? Who didn't die? Then we cut back to the cabin. Yeah, that's when we find out our stoner Marty, he made it. He fucking took out a zombie or two, has been holding his own. He comes up and saves our redhead Dana from being murdered. That's another thing that kind of right before the phone rings, they're partying while on the big screen behind them is the redhead being attacked by Papa Buckner. <laughs> and it's not like she's just maybe going to get away. He, like, has her down. Like, it's over. And he's taking his time with it, too. He's, like, throwing her up and down this dock at the lake. Yeah. Just, just beating the shit out of her. Wrapping the chain around her and, and all the stuff while this very typical corporate party is going on, phone rings, <laughs> and then Stoner Guy shows up with his his bong telescoping bong hits papa buckner eventually shoves him off enough into the pond to allow redhead and him to run away interestingly interestingly enough jesus if i could talk that telescopic thermos that turns into a bong mm -hmm. that's an actual prop that they made that can work as an actual bong and a thermos wow and uh the prototype cost five thousand dollars to make what yep yep five thousand dollars for that $5,000. They can't. This is some weird Hollywood court like accounting. I don't, I don't hey, get it. Once again, if you get to work in the props department and smoke weed all day, and then you get to design your dream bong, pretty awesome fucking job. Maybe that's like the cost of materials and supplies and also the salaries of like four stoner prop folk. Yeah, who are all sitting there drawing diagrams of the pieces they need to make their fucking perfect bong. And they're stone, so instead of it taking one night, it takes them like a week. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they're, they're fucking passing the joint around while talking about the best bong that could be invented. So. And it has to work, so you, you know, you have to include the cost of testing it with actual material <laughs> yeah you, you got to get the fucking studio to buy you at least a couple grams because how are you gonna know if it works <laughs> Jesus! oh mm. my god quality control you know like all of that cost <laughs> it adds up safety it and standards up. you know <laughs> yeah true true <laughs> so they run off stoner is leading them to a grave and redhead is like what the fuck <laughs> what what but he's like no come on he comes down there it leads into like an underground shaft and eventually into this isn't just dirt anymore this is there's like concrete walls there's a breaker box and an electric box mm -hmm. he fiddles with it enough and you drop they drop down into an elevator as the zombies are trying to get to them from behind he basically says like i fucked with this thing enough to figure out if i do this it opens a hatch <laughs> and this is the elevator that the buckners came out of and he's like i don't know where it goes but it gets us out of here <laughs> So yeah. it's the best option. They hop in this glass elevator thing and it's basically just dropping them down into the abyss until they finally end up where all the creatures that have been mentioned earlier in the movie are held in their respective cubes. So you see, you're introduced to a number of these creepy creatures. And at some point, one of, you know, creepy girl with like weird telescope mouth, a ghost, some other shit. Pretty much everything that was on that betting board earlier is what you're seeing. Yes. The girl with the teeth face is the sugar plum fairy. <sighs> Other ones that weren't 
explicitly mentioned, but you do see. If you know the video game Left 4 Dead, you'll know that there are special types of zombies in that game known as, like, witches, gassers, uh, boomers. You actually see each one of those things in this movie because... The movie was supposed to be doing a cross-promotional DLC with the game to have some of the movie characters in the game, and also your characters would play through levels that went from the town into the woods, to the cabin, and then into the facility itself. That's actually super cool. Unfortunately, this cross-promotional stuff all got scrapped once MGM started to hemorrhage money and they Mm. had to shut down all of their extra work. So unfortunately, we didn't get that in the end, but it was there in the movie. So you have all of these monsters that you're being shown. One of them in particular, I wanted to zoom in on because it's this weird, I don't know, it's like a weird creepy vampire monk with saw blades in his head. <laughs> but he's holding the spherical puzzle Rubik's box. cube. Yeah. Yeah, the puzzle box that Thor was playing with. And there's a little like note of recognition on the redhead's face. Mm-hmm. The pieces are starting to fall in line that this is a game and they just let us choose how we die. So this will probably be the only other big reference I bring up because you mentioned it and it is a big plot point. That's a huge Hellraiser reference if you've seen that. The whole puzzle box summons a weird BDSM demon. And that's that's all there is to it, really. But yeah, the whole Cenobites thing, it's really fun. Go watch Hellraiser, don't watch Hellraiser 2. And I haven't seen any of the other Hellraisers. That's my opinion on those movies. And at this point, the elevator moves away from Hellraiser and all the other monsters. The facility people are desperately trying to find where they are in their huge vault of horrible monstrosities. Which should have been easy, because they should have realized the only capsule that should be empty is the one that the Buckners were in. We should already know the number for that capsule. Yeah. That's my my only big nitpick for this movie, okay, guys? But... (laughs) It didn't take them, you know, it didn't take them super long, but it did take them a few minutes of them going through all the monsters, the door opening up, and there's one security guard who happens to be there. He draws his gun, starts yelling at them. I just wanted to say, the one that actually finds them is our new guy. So our new guy does establish himself as being on the side of the company or the government, whoever's in charge of this, because he's the one who sees them on the screen, and he makes the choice of pointing at the screen and saying, There! And so mm-hmm. he has finally implicated himself fully. He has gone from being the quote unquote voice of morality, the one that's yeah. questioning the entire thing, to being fully involved now. So the he points to them, the facility people know where they're at now and are starting to send, you know, things to deal with them. But right now there's one security guard that just happens to be there. <laughs> he draws his gun on them. They're putting their hands up, but the facility people have said the stoner has to die first, has to die before the virgin. So the security guard is trying to get a shot on, but the redhead is in front of the stoner, so he can't get a clear shot, which leaves a zombie arm that fell down into the shaft of whatever her name is Patience Buckner, the chance to grab at him, distract him as they they two rush them and he gets knocked out. They pick up the gun and head further into the facility, blundering their way in. And somewhere in all of this is where we find out that the chem department 
missed one of the stoner's stashes, so they didn't lace all of his weed. That's why he's been immune to everything that they've been trying to do to him, is because he's smoking good shit and not shit laced with whatever they wanted him to smoke. They're now in this big concrete underground facility with no windows, and there's a voice that comes over the speaker that says something to the point of, this is bigger than you, this is more important. Please just give up, we'll make it quick. Just give up and let this happen, yeah, yeah essentially. And so at this point, I'm, me personally, and I'm sure a lot of the audience are pretty clear on like, okay, there's a big dark forces and these people are nefarious, but they're trying to placate them so it's not worse. So it's kind of a mixed bag. Sigourney Weaver spells this out more explicitly later, but at this point it's pretty clear in my yeah. opinion. And I, I love this after the whole PA scene, by the time she gets done talking, they're in this beautiful white hallway with a bunch of stainless steel and concrete around them and there's just 50 fucking guys with machine guns standing in this hallway all pointing it at them meanwhile they have one pistol and a bloody trowel <laughs> to protect themselves <laughs> with and she's telling them to give up and everything they're looking at all these guys and then they realize wait do all of these elevators go where i think they go hit all the buttons <laughs> and so they just call in elevators like six at a time just full of these fucking nightmare creatures <laughs> and yeah so there's a great scene of you're seeing this overwhelming force that they're going to lose to and then you hear the ding of the elevators and you can tell all the the hit squad guys in armor and you know dark shit are just like oh shit <laughs> they open up and there's immediately a clusterfuck now i didn't read all the names on the board so i'm glad you read them out because you do see a werewolf mm -hmm. you do see a bat person you see a giant tree come out there which i guess is the molesting tree yeah and you see all these things come out and be, uh, begin to kill and these things as the, these guys are just shooting wildly. I think my favorite monster, other than the merman, because merman kind of has to be number one in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> but besides him, I think the dismemberment goblins are probably my favorite. <laughs> they were what the they were the like kind of short goblin looking things that were flying around and they would pick somebody up and then just like one of them tears a leg off while the other one tears an arm off. <laughs> Oh, I don't even think I even noticed that. I mean, these scenes are pretty chaotic, but I didn't notice those guys at all. Yeah, uh, that first scene where all the monsters come out, they're in the background and like one of them's flying <sighs> and the other one's just hanging onto the guy's legs while the flying one pulls his arms and he just rips apart at the waist. <laughs> it's pretty glorious. <laughs> I have a favorite besides Merman, obviously, mm -hmm. as well. But at this point, because they're releasing all these monsters, the facility is kind of dissolving into chaos. The you know, some of the facility people are like, We've lost sectors four, five, six, and three A, and they're trying to like react because there's a giant snake now and a mummy and ghost and like everything else. And it's just a big clusterfuck. One of my favorites is there's a like glorious sparkling white unicorn. They even play like <laughs> The holy ah yeah. sound as it's there that just impales the guy. I'm like, I don't, when I think of unicorn, you know, the Dresden files might paint them as more nefarious, but I don't typically think of them as like evil monsters, which is why it stood out to me. But he doesn't pale a guy, so... What are you gonna do? I love these scenes because the guys in the control room are watching all of this madness unfold on their little TV screens. But 
we're getting like quick shots of everything that's happening throughout the facility and there's like one woman with a gun to her head as another guy in the background is being ripped apart and she just blows her own head off because she doesn't want to live through the pain of and horror. <laughs> it's just it's just a beautiful fucking scene with all of these very classic horror images going mm. on all over the place all at once and so at some point the stoner and the redhead like run through the big hole in the wall that's been created by something i can't remember a giant bat or something um as we go back to the lead scientist the two chuckle fucks who are in their more secure control room but it's being beaten down at some point the door comes down everything rushes in the guard who was kind of on the moral high ground until he pointed them out, gets swarmed with, I don't know, scarecrows or something. He does a noble sacrifice with, with a grenade that kills mm -hmm. most of them. Uh, and then we have Chuckle, one of the Chuckle fucks, uh, Fate, as it were, catches up to him. <laughs> he always bets on Merman. He never gets to see one. And as we've heard, the cleanup on those is a hell of a job. <laughs> and <laughs> the whole time you're thinking, like, how the fuck is a Merman that crazy like it's just a guy with a fish yeah. bottom right and then you get a look at the merman <laughs> and he's got this it looks like a very deep sea creature that one of those crazy looking fish monsters that are real life things like it's yeah. got a big penis shaped nose and floppy droopy face and everything and then it's got a big blowhole on the back so that you do know it's a mammal <laughs> And it just crawls its way over to him as he's pinned on the ground and starts chomping into him and then spraying blood out of its blowhole. <laughs> it's fucking <laughs> glorious. It Yeah, it's, the blood coming out of the blowhole is disgusting and wild. And like you said... You know, when he mentions mermaid, I'm picturing a male version of your stereotypical female mermaid depiction. Mm -hmm. You know, some sort of siren that's going to seduce your way, seduce into drowning you or something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is the opposite of that. <laughs> the ones remaining are trying to escape. A big tentacle snatches the female scientist and it's just one of the chuckle fucks who's running away. Meanwhile, we go back to Stoner and Redhead, who are made it into the ritual room. And I love that scene of them accidentally running into him in the hallway, and the Redhead That's stabs right. him. And he's slowly dying from one stab wound, as you are wont to do in movies. And he's slumped on the ground, he's like, No, 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 please, 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 kill him. And she doesn't understand the context of that yet, but like he says, kill him, yeah. and then he dies. They run off, eventually find their way into the ritual room where you remember all those stone-like rivets that the blood was flowing through. You finally get a more zoomed out, and you've seen a few images throughout the rest of the movie towards the later mm -hmm. stages of it. But you finally get a full depiction that there's, I think, is there five? There's five of them. Of the... Of these stone big things, and the blood is dripping down them, and they depict humanoids, people. There must be at least five. The whore, she's corrupted. She dies first. The athlete, the scholar, the fool, all suffer and die at the hands of whatever horror they have raised, leaving the last to live or die as fate decides. The virgin. 
almost always whoever's having sex, they're going to be the first one to die. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, as soon as you get naked, you're done for. As soon as you drink and do drugs, you're done for. <laughs> it, it's just classic horror movie rules. And that's such a funny thing I never noticed and feels like a weird morality is tied into that in a weird way. Well, and that's what horror originally was, were morality tales, but twisted to let the audience like kind of take take part in these gruesome horrifying tales and Mm. sure sometimes you might be scared by it other times you might be playing along more with the killer because these people broke the rules these people deserve to die Mm. it has it's been okay or it's been made okay for you to want them to die. That's just kind of always been the underlying themes of horror. And this movie is interesting because it kind of plays with those themes, basically spells them out and dances around them. So Jorney Weaver shows up, spells out the rules explicitly and says, hey, the sun is rising in eight minutes. If we don't complete the ritual by then, everything's going to end. You, redhead, have to kill the stoner or the stoner has to die. Mm -hmm. Um, or the ritual is incomplete, or the ancient evils will rise up and kill everything, including you. She's even telling the stoner, like, look, you can die for them, or you can die with, like, it's, there is no choice here. It's one or the other. You are fucking dead. Do you want to wipe out the entire human race, or just sacrifice yourself and let everyone else keep going? Which brings back that domino all the way from the beginning where he's been talking about how society should just be started over. And that's Mm. ultimately what drives his decision and Dana's. (laughs) After Sojourney kind of finishes, or while she's explaining, Redhead behind the stone erases her gun to him. Kind of like, hey, the whole fate of the world is on this. This seems like a relatively, you know, a worthy price to pay for the sake of all of the world's existence before she gets a chance to pull the trigger as the full stoner kind of turns and faces her and basically says like do it (laughs) (laughs) or whatever i don't remember what he says but kind of like calls her out like you bitch or something (laughs) a werewolf comes in and chomps her neck and slings her over she's bleeding out and now i'm personally can am thinking like oh shit not only no longer is this just a simple decision of like shoot the stoner or not it's that decision plus you have to do it before she dies yeah because she's now bleeding out we get this wonderful little fight scene between the three of them sigourney weaver's rolling on the ground with the stoner trying to kill him and Mm -hmm. little patience buckner comes walking in with her famous hatchet and slams it right into sigourney weaver's head and the axe gets stuck she can't get it out stoner kicks them both Mm. over the side and they go falling into infinity much like chris hemsworth did earlier and that's when the gods start to get really angry and finally it's just dana and marty left they're sitting there on the steps bleeding out together Mm. he he pulls out a joint (laughs) lights it up and they're just kind of like smoking their last bone before the end of the world there's that interesting callback, like you said, to starting over society. And at some point, I think the redhead says, you know, humans, I think it's time to give someone else a chance or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they're basically down for it. And time runs out and the movie basically just cuts and ends. <laughs> my, my favorite line here between the two of them talking is the whole setup was that they were going to Kurt, Chris Hemsworth character, they're going to his cousin's cabin for the weekend, and the stoner guy's just like, I don't think Kurt even has a cousin. 
like, like the signs have been there all along. We were all just too fucking stupid. <laughs> so they purposely, they make the choice. You know, all the other factors that are trying to make the choice for them, like Sojourning Weaver and the werewolf and everything else, they're taken out. It's just on them. And they make the choice to let it end. At which point a giant hand like raises up out of the nether and slams through the cabin in the woods and the movie ends yeah i think they could have been a they could have done something a little more fun for the big god that is gonna tear apart and cause the end of the world because it's just kind of like a titan human giant i don't know kind of has like a fiery look about him but other than that it's nothing really special. It could have been like a Hercules Titan, you know, magma monster or something elemental and crazy, but it looks a little vanilla. Other than that. Yeah. Or I got the same impression too, because I tend to lean more to like forces, like the shadows envelop everywhere. It's not just one giant thing. That's, mm-hmm. Even if it is the size of Texas, it's just one thing. Uh, you know, I, I lean towards entire forces that can't be contained at all. But whatever. It's at the very end of the movie. It's one tiny thing. Why fight a Tarrasque when you can fight Poseidon and the waves, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. The entire ocean. Exactly. Have everything be flooded by the ocean versus fight, you know, one Kraken. Yeah. Exactly. Great metaphor. <laughs> so that's that's kind of the end of the movie. Uh, what are your what are your kind of closing thoughts about it? It's a great fucking movie. As far as comedy horror goes, it's fucking perfect. It's parodying uh, parodying. I can never say that word right. Horror in, <laughs> horror in general, and it's talking explicitly about the quote unquote rules of horror movies and how to get around them, but also how to enforce them. And the idea of the writers sitting in a control room and causing this to actually happen to 20-somethings out in the woods is fucking hilarious. And the fact that they can bring all of that together into a coherent horror movie that turns even more horrific when you have people dying by the dozens to every horror monster imaginable all at the same time and still have a cohesive thought going all the way through it. It's amazing that they managed to pull it off and come off looking much smarter than your average horror movie, I guess. End of the day, 9 out of 10. I had a couple of small nitpicks here and there, nothing too major. 9 out of 10 is pretty fucking good, guys. I love this movie, and I'll keep watching shit from Joss Whedon, for sure. It is a really fun movie, and I can't help but think towards the end of it, when the entire people, all of the people at the facility are being attacked by the monsters they unleashed. It's almost, you have this, the rules of the horror, both in a meta sense but also in an internal narrative sense that were applied to the cabin character college students are now applied towards the facility you know they transgressed they at some point were a part of activating and utilizing all these cursed items in in a very similar way to these college kids in this cabin they transgressed on just a larger scope with a greater number of these magic things and nefarious beings and supernaturals and whatever else uh, so it kind of <laughs> there's an interesting mirror where at the end of the day because they transgressed on that massive scope that the punishment for them is on a massive level and could they ever avoid this fate in any way the entire idea of is it worth it for us to save the entire world if every year 
a group of people has to go through this exact same thing. Mm -hmm. Is that really worth everything else still happening? You know, I get the point. I think it's a little flawed at the end of the day because I am a pragmatist and uh, sacrificing five or 20 people a year to save all of the human race, probably worth it, especially if you could choose the right people to sacrifice, I think. (laughs) I understand it. I think the movie, for a movie, it works perfect. I don't think this movie was seeking to delve into this philosophical question per se, but it is brought up where you, if faced with that decision, stated you probably would would do that. I think a lot of us probably would. If you're talking about 20 people, and even if you say, you know, it looks like there's five in every facility across the world, you know, even if it's 100 people, 20 facilities, Mm -hmm. you know, double it, make it 200, (laughs) you know, 200 lives per year. Like, think about how many are, are killed in war and starvation and disease. Like, it's it's such a small percentage of the millions of people on this planet. It seems like a a worthy price. And the question then becomes for me, thinking about this philosophically and beyond the limits of this movie, do you lose something in making that decision that you can't gain back? Right. By making that decision, do you lear- lose a part of your soul or your life or values or honor or whatever you want to call it that devalues the human life? You know, if you're willing to make that decision, then it's no longer worth saving. Is that the answer to the philosophical question? And that's pretty much what we're given through our office workers throughout the entire movie is they are dead inside. They mm-hmm. they don't have pity for these people. They don't see them as people because technically our office workers here are all mass murderers <laughs> or not even right. mass murderers. They're serial killers. <laughs> and that's their right. job title at the end of the day. So. Yeah, you have to be a special kind of dead inside person to do this and make these decisions. I think it is perfect. I love it. It's so interesting, too, because then do you extrapolate that if because some dead inside people made this decision, does that ruin everyone else unknowingly? And that's why everyone feels kind of dead inside and feels aimless and purposeless in the entire world. And this movie isn't seeking to do that. This movie, I don't think, is I think it's just seeking to be. I think they are looking to comment on these things. I don't think it's trying to solve it the question, but because right. it is inherently a philosophical question that has no true answer. Right. But I think they wanted to bring it up and they also wanted to kind of point a finger at themselves and be like, look, I make a living off of writing stories of people being brutally murdered. Mm-hmm. This is what I do for a living. Is it right? I don't know, but people enjoy it and I enjoy it. So I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah. And and so to close out, I mean, those are my big thoughts on the movie that don't really have an answer. but. <laughs> I I obviously like the movie. I've said it before. I don't really particularly like horror. And if this is considered horror, I like it. (laughs) I like this movie. Go see it, especially during... This is a movie I would suggest for me and a group of my friends to watch. Even knowing some of them don't particularly like horror. Because it's such such a watchable movie. And you don't have to like horror for for it to be watchable. It's a fun movie that asks some fun questions. I know this phrase has been... ruined for people in the movie world people who watch a lot of movies and pay attention to the hollywood aspect but this movie subverts expectations and it does it in a Mm -hmm. great way it plays with the ideas it's not your normal horror movie so i think anyone can enjoy this 
pretty much. Some people might get turned off by the overuse of gore toward the end, but eh, fuck you. That's what we're here for. <laughs> <laughs> and to uh, to rate it, I would rate this out of 10. Like someone places on your table a child's Rugrats <laughs> Halloween-themed cereal bowl this chipped and it's filled with spaghettios and you're like okay i know what this is i've had this before it's gonna be fine it's gonna taste like spaghettios it'll get the job done i know the themes to this movie and then you take a bite and it doesn't taste like spaghettios at all and instead it tastes like a, a very delicious tomato bisque <laughs> Whatever, it subverts expectations. I like the movie. <laughs> Deal with my shitty rating system. I love your metaphors. They're so dumb, but so great. Uh, so insightful, the SpaghettiOs. What <laughs> is next? Save me from my SpaghettiO. <laughs> so that was Cabin in the Woods, 2011, directed by Drew Goddard. We love it. Go watch it. It's a damn good movie. Next week, however, we're getting a little weird, folks. Next week is Rubber, 2011. Sponsored by Trojan. Directed by Quentin Dupier. I'm terrible at French, so I literally have no idea how to... Je suis Dupier. <laughs> sure. I never took French. I don't know French at all. I took Spanish and Latin, so... <laughs> <laughs> I have actually watched this movie this past weekend in preparation, so let me go ahead and warn people, if you haven't seen Rubber before, it's slow, it's fucking weird, because it's French, and it's very flawed, but at the same time, you can have a lot of fun with it if you choose to have a lot of fun with it. So just take that for what it is. If you want to see something weird and horror comedy, once again, go do it. Give in to the rubber. <laughs> Let the rubber consume you. I don't know how many French films you've seen, Klaus, but uh, French writers and directors get really weird. So <laughs> I've seen Amelie, so Amelie? Amelie? Amelie. Whatever. Amelie. Yeah. I'm an expert in French. Yeah, that, that movie is fantastic. That's that's one of the few 10 of 10 movies that I have, honestly. And it's a romantic comedy. I love that movie. Next week, the rubber hits the road. <laughs> Indeed it does. We'll see you then, folks. Until next time, I'm Jake. And I'm Klaus. Bye. Bye.